Well, this morning, we continue to celebrate Christmas, and I, as I said earlier, uh, my thought is that uh, it's really important for us to remember that I'm the winner of the argument I had with my uh, son, Sadir, who uh, argued with me when I told him that Christmas is not a day, but a season, a season uh, called Christmas Tide that's supposed to last uh, 12 days. And I think it's really important to remember that Christmas is not an event that we remember that's in the past, but Christmas is a season in which we remember uh, that the incarnation is not an event in history look upon which we look back, but one that we enjoy every morning, one that is true every morning, that God is Emmanuel with us, and that we are to be the living um, hands and feet of God and the way we do that, as Paul remembered, is he reflected upon what the consequences of the resurrection are in all his letters, uh, is that we are to bear fruit, certain fruit. So today we're continuing in our the third in our series of, um, uh, you know, about about the, the fruit. And uh, uh, we're going to be today talking about faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And uh, just as a reminder, if you've missed the first two, uh, which are on the podcast, uh, that, that uh, Paul uh, is really putting before us the question that I think uh, – uh, Stephen Covey presented us in his book, uh, First Things First, where he basically said the most important thing for us to do if we want to live lives of fullness is, is to ask ourselves the question, what do we want to be like when we grow up and then manage back from that future? In other words, what you do now matters immensely into determining who you will be at maturity whenever that happens. I've not reached that point yet. I'm still working on it. But bearing fruits of the spirit is the goal of the Christian life. That's the vision that the Messiah set before us. Bearing fruit is the very means by which you and I in flesh are risen and exalted Lord. That's the way the world sees us. That's when we say glorify God, that means to make God visible. How do we make God visible? We make God visible through the fruits that we manifest, that are fruits that God has called us to, to bear. The, it's the way we enact our calling of being his living hands and feet and eyes in our particular time, in our particular place. It's how we cooperate rather than obstruct God's efforts to reconcile a in all of creation to God's self. So the key question that I've been presenting in this series and I present to you this morning is, what do you need to do now and in the coming year as we pivot into 2022 uh, in order to become that, you know, the one whom God dreams you will be, a fruit-bearing sapien who channels God's presence in the world for all of those whom God favors. That's the challenge for us. And as, as a reminder, uh, Dave read to us the you know Paul's uh, letter to uh, Galatia, the church at Galatia, in which he describes several of the fruit. I want to note that uh, that uh, 
you know, these fruit are bookended by love and by self-control. Uh, th- those are the those are the key ones, love and self-control. And and the and the inner ones are really the unpacking of those two. Um, and the important thing Paul also makes again and again, both in his letter to Galatians and Romans and Philippians and and in the one from Colossia to the church at Col- uh, Colossae that he read today, the church at uh, the church we call the Colossians. Um, you know, the, the real important point that he makes is that God will indeed produce these fruit if we do our part in cultivating them. And as someone who is a gardener, and I know several of you are gardeners, you know, that's that should be self-evident, it would seem. You know, a, a blueberry patch won't produce blueberries if no one actually cultivates the patch. You can plant the seed, but we have a job to do ourselves in cultivating those fruit. So as we go forward uh, in this series today, we're going to focus on a word first that is very familiar to us, that word uh, faithfulness, faith or faithfulness. Now, in the Greek, that word appears in you know many times in the New Testament. It's the word that Paul uh, uses called pis, uh, pistis, pistis, which means faith or faithfulness, heartfelt trust. That's an important point, heartfelt trust trust. It's a confidence, confidence that God will take care of us, a confidence that transforms our lives, the sense that God will never abandon us. And uh, it's, it also refers to a growth in that. It's a growing in our trust, this life of pistis, this life of faith. So when I speak of it as a life, I mean, speaking of it as a habit of virtue, you know, uh, and the virtue of faithfulness doesn't happen unless you cultivate it. I'm often asked by folks who are, you know, finding themselves in spiritual deserts, why do I not feel close to God anymore? And often the folks who ask that presuppose that there's something wrong with God, something wrong with God's love of them. God's not loving me right. God's not giving my me my due, or else I would feel, uh, I would feel it. I would feel faithful in God. The problems with God, not with me. It's, it's often the, the presupposition. Um, it, rather than recognizing that we ourselves need to work on this virtue of faithfulness. When I say it's a virtue, I mean it is a thick habit. Thomas Aquinas rightly named faith a spiritual virtue. There are the cardinal virtues and there are the spiritual virtues, meaning that those spiritual virtues are faith, hope, and love. Those are ones that we cannot reason to. We cannot use our brains and and reason our way to the gift of faith. No, the Holy Spirit needs needs to erupt into our lives, needs to give us this gift of faith. That's the planting of a seed, however. We have to do our part. We have to nurture it so that that initial seed grows into the fullness of faith changes our lives. Our basic premise is the one that we say again and again in, in our in our prayers in, in the Episcopal Church. Our, our basic premise is, is that as we grow in grace, we grow in faithfulness. Now, I confess that when I was a young man, I had a great need for certainty. This is something that uh, I see uh, all the time in, in the young, uh, youngest two children that God has blessed me with uh, the honor of stewarding. Uh, they have a great need for certainty, too. They need a, a great need for structure and, and, and a certainty. Uh, in order to be at peace, I needed and they need to feel a sense of control over the things that affected my life. 
life. Uh, that included God. And it included my responsibility to be faithful. Even though I was in church, I was not yet in the Messiah. I was not yet in Christ. The Messiah played a small role in my life. I lacked that blessed assurance we sing about, you know, uh, the, the blessed assurance that enables us to ease our white knuckled grip on the steering wheels of our lives and let the Messiah drive. I, I was not yet ready to trust him. And as a result, he couldn't trust me. I lacked that blessed assurance that enabled me to, to ease my white knuckled grip on the steering wheel of my life and let him drive. Now, the older I get, the less I need that certainty by the grace of God. As God has gotten bigger in my life, the more experience I gain with letting God take the con, letting God give steering orders when I retain, while I retain the helm as I navigate my life. I no, no longer need that certainty in my head. It's like my love with my wife, Sejina. As we live with each other, the more we learn how to trust each other, how to let the other be on point at times so that we have peace. Because we know the other has our best interest at heart. We, we simply know it. So we don't need to worry about it. If she's driving, I know that I'm good. She's going to take me to the destination we are both seeking. We're on the same page. I know that she desires all that is good for me and all that is good for us. And it's similar with trusting God because I've learned through time just how trustworthy God is. I've been blessed with a certainty in his heart, you know, and in my heart that calms that voice that anxiously insists on certainty in my head. I have certainty in my heart that rests the, the, the anxiety in my head. And I know that the Messiah walks with me, holding my right hand, as the Psalms repeatedly say, and that the Messiah walks also ahead of me on that path, simultaneously holding my hand and way out on the trail ahead of me, scouting and preparing the path ahead. And so, I'm not afraid. The older I get, the less afraid I ever am. I, I could die tomorrow. And this life is so good that, you know, I hope I don't die tomorrow. But I know whatever is on the next chapter of this story of my life with God, it will be better, even better. And I think that's what we say when we we say our prayer, our general thanksgiving in our in our, in our liturgy. And I want to remind you of those words where where we we speak of this trust of God. You know, uh, we bless you, Lord, for our creation, preservation, and the blessings of this life. But most of all, for your immeasurable love, the redemption of the world by Jesus Christ. And my the, my favorite phrase for the means of grace and the hope of glory, that with truly thankful hearts, we may truly, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, giving up ourselves to serve you, walking in your ways in holy and righteousness all of our days. Yes, I, as I grow in age, I'm, I'm, I'm better able to trust in the Lord and let him take the con. And I don't fear. Yet some people I know grow older and they become more afraid as they age. 
They live with worry, with an unsettledness. When I've seen folks like that, I, I sometimes uh, um, grow concerned. Uh, but then I meet people like this woman that uh, that I uh, that I grew to adore at my at my my last parish, Nora. She she I remember was so funny. She was a wonderful singer in our choir. Uh, and I remember at age seventy six, she picked out a group of pallbearers that she wanted to have at her funeral. She brought them to me, and uh, and I followed in the drawer. And she she was she was planning her funeral because she. Was convinced that she was going to die any minute, um, but it turns out I remember noting she outlived every one of the people she picked to be bought to be pallbearers. <laughs> she was a, a fountain of wisdom and grace long into her nineties. I want to be like Nora when I grow up, not a life marked by angst, but a but uh, by a sense that God has me in God's hands and won't let me go. That's faithfulness. But you have to cultivate that. It doesn't, doesn't just happen. And the way we cultivate that is through regular worship, constant prayer, constantly taking the sacraments, practicing the sacraments, serving God and God's people. Um, and when we do all of those things, when we're paying attention, is and that's what that what those things do. They help us to pay attention. That's that's the magic in them. They they focus our minds on the things that are excellent and pure. Well, when we do that, we see that God is. As we look back upon it all, we see that God has walked with us the whole way, and we grow to trust in that. Now, there's another sense of, of the word pistis here that Paul uses, another sense of that word uh, of, that means faithfulness. And it's not about God's faithfulness, but it's about our faithfulness to God. I am a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, and I am called to the habit, habit of faithfulness to God so that, that God experiences me as faithful. You know, whether I'm age 11, whether I'm age 16, 45, or 75, Faithfulness in this sense means trustworthiness. It means that God can trust you. I want to ask you about that. Can God trust you now? Can God trust you with the little things of life? For if God can trust you with the little things, perhaps God can trust you also with the big things like responsibilities, resources, talents, God wants you to be faithful, wants me to be faithful, to be trustworthy so that God can invest in you, invest in me, can count on you and me to be channels through which God can bless the world. And faithfulness has to do also with this faithfulness that is to God and also to other people. So in our marriage, we are called to faithfulness. To our coworkers, we are called to faithfulness. To our neighbors, we are called to faithfulnesses. Faithfulness. We make promises, but do we actually fulfill those promises? Sometimes I struggle with this because I make more commitments than I could possibly fulfill. I sometimes I'm unable to say no. I say yes to so many things, and then I find that I can't get around to fulfilling all those things. I imagine that's true of some of you. Right now, Sajina and I feel responsible to so many people. We experience this tension of wanting to be multiple places at once. And that 
tension creates stress in our lives. It affects our ability to manifest all the other fruit of the spirit. So the habit of faithfulness entails knowing what we say yes to and making sure we are people of our word, living our lives so that others can have confidence in us, that they know we will do what we say we will do. That's what faithfulness means. And that's important because trustworthiness is important in every type of our work on this earth, every relationship. Integrity and faithfulness go hand in hand. Now, I've known many people to whom I've had to adapt. Many people where I've just had to recognize I can't count on them. They are not trustworthy. But I've also known many men and women who practice this habit, this virtue of faithfulness. Even when they were 75, 85, 95, their word was their bond. When you shook hands, you knew they would deliver. Are you that kind of person? Is that who you're going to be? That's the fruit of faithfulness. Now, Paul calls us also to another fruit, a fruit that we translate in English to gentleness. Uh, and and that's, that's always been a struggle for me. Um, the, the Greek, it points us to humility from which we get the word, you know, which, which is in the same word family as human and humus, you know, and we often uh, translate it as meekness, mild and meek. Sometimes we think these things are weak, uh, that, that when you're meek or, or gentle, it means you're not strong. But let's remember, Jesus, the scripture tells us, was meek. He was gentle, and yet he was the strongest person there ever was. And as, and as, I, as folks have said to me before, in helping me to understand this, this gentleness, this meekness is like Velvet-covered steel. Velvet-covered steel. I love that metaphor. It's strength of character that is unparalleled, yet cloaked in something soft. And so we take this part of us that has a tendency to run in a hundred different directions, and we manage somehow to harness that power. We channel that divine power that, that God has invested in us so that it has impact. And it has not just impact, but impact in the direction to which we direct it like a laser. The light of God is in you. That's what we celebrate this Christmas. But if it is diffused, it won't have the transformative impact God desires it to have. Gentleness is about being able to take that power and bring it under control. And when you're very controlled with that divine power within you, it, like a laser, can slice through steel. That's gentleness. It's strong, not weak. It's powerful. Gentleness is godly power, bounded, restrained, and focused for purpose so that it slices through the ugliness of life. And the opposite of gentleness is what we normally tend towards, at least I find I do, this tendency to channel a harsh word. 
it's saying things we probably shouldn't say in ways we shouldn't say them. Now, this is something that uh, Sajin and I are working on with our, our young ones, teaching them this habit, trying to strengthen this, this thick habit of gentleness towards each other and towards others. And for a child, that's something we have to teach. But as adults, it's something we have to teach also and uh, to focus on uh, in practice. This, this habit uh, of being abrupt with other people. In the epistle of James, he talks about shooting hours, uh, shooting arrows made of our anger at our brothers and sisters. It's demanding what we want in getting our own way always, seeing the others always as competitors rather than those who are called to walk alongside us. That's not what leads to meaningful life. It's not what leads to joyful life. And it hardly ever works with other people. It's not effective either. Almost nobody responds better to harshness than to gentleness. Even animals. Cows produce more milk if they're treated gently and kindly by their dairy farmers. And both dogs and humans wag their tails and smile at us, not when we are harsh, but when we are gentle. Right now, we live in a hyper-confrontational world, a very litigious society where right now in particular, everyone we meet seems to be eager for a fight. And, and we ourselves might be spoiling for a fight. It's, it's so easy for us right now to be caught up in this, to be triggered in this nihilistic world, triggered by others, and then finding ourselves immediately placed into, triggered into a posture of fight. And Paul, into that tendency speaks and calls us to be meek. And in Ephesians 4, verse 29, he again speaks of this gentleness. Uh, and he says that our gentleness is manifest in our touch, in our words. He says, don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. I, I just wanted to ask you if right now, this is, this is really profound wisdom uh, for us to take on this morning, but I want to get you to focus on his phrase, don't let any foul words. This is, this is something that's being juxtaposed against the idea of gentleness, foul words. In the New Revised Standard Version, it says evil words. And the Greek word that is there is sapros. And Paul uses that word and, and to describe our evil or foul words, those are the words that we say to each other when we don't practice the godly gentleness to which we are called. And what I want to let you know is that word uh, describes something putrefied. I'm reminded of uh, from time to time, I have to do a smell check on food that we placed long ago in Tupperware and, and put somewhere in the back of the refrigerator. Of the refrigerator and, and we reach into the refrigerator and we pull it out and we open the lid and wow, it just stinks. It's foul and it goes in the trash where it belongs. That's the word Paul's using here, sapros, foul. He's speaking of our foul words. And he says to us, we're not, we're to cease and desist from such language with each other. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy, he says. You were sealed by him in your baptism. So put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, 
anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. I was reminded recently of uh, one of the hardest tasks for a, a, a preacher is to do a funerals. And, and I remember one of the, as I was thinking about this, one of the hardest funerals I ever had to, to, to lead, one of the hardest funeral sermons I had to, to write. It was, a, it was a, a, a funeral for someone I had never met. And uh, I, I didn't have people really knew her. Uh, the one who approached me was a single family member, her daughter. And she started to cry. She said, I feel terrible saying this, but I can't think of one nice thing to say about my mom. I felt daggers in my heart. You know, how do you preach a funeral about that, about one for whom her daughter could not say one kind thing? I don't want to be like that when I grow up. I want my daughters and sons to say when I die things that are the opposite. I want them to say what Paul has said, you know, be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other. You know, now they won't say that's true about me now, but I hope that they will say, yeah, but dad's been working on that. He's been working on gentleness over time. May our words give grace to those who hear them. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving to each other. In the same way, God forgave you in Christ. Now, the last fruit that Paul talks about is one that's really tough. Again, this is one of those bookends. It's the, this, this habit, this fruit called self-control. When I have preached on the fruits of the spirit in the past, I usually go around the congregation asking folks, you know, well, which are the fruits that you struggle with most? And I've actually asked some of you that, and, and, and it's always the same answer. Most people will say that the fruit that they struggle with most is the same one that I struggle with most, which is patience. But the second one people say they struggle with the most is self-control. It's very close. Self-control is a big problem for many of us. Certainly it is for me. Now, I got to tell you, as I was thinking about this sermon in the last couple of days, uh, this Christmas, you know, surrounded by a loving family and surrounded by absolutely an abundance of, of, of incredible food, um, I'm, I'm finding myself eating, a, you know, this huge meal. And I'm, I'm, I'm um, as the family knows, I have a thing for whipped cream. I'm loading up my, you know, my pumpkin pie uh, and, and, and uh, uh, pecan pies with uh, whipped cream, you know. And at the same time, I'm, I'm praying for the food. I'm asking God to bless me. And, you know, as, as I prepare my sermon on faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, you know, and then I open my eyes. And I, I just had to laugh at myself. Yeah, Lord, bless me with self-control when I want it, but just not now. You know, as, as uh, sort of I'm channeling uh, Augustine, of, of the Bishop of Hippo, who said, you know, Lord, make me chase, but just not now. I, I, I'm going to eat these rich delectables and pile on the whipped cream, et cetera. And I'm going to put on three more pounds uh, because this 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 habit of self-control is so challenging for me. My point is that it takes something more than just praying for self-control. We have to actually cultivate it to nurture it because our natural tendency is not to have self-control. It's to have very low self-control. The word control is actually dominion, to rule over. 
in Greek, you can, as I've, I've put on the slide here, uh, it is the word inkresia. And you can recognize, if you pay closely, you can recognize the, the word krat from Democrat, you know, the power of the people, Democritus, you know, uh, this, this, the word shares the same roots uh, with it, you know. And in this case, it's not the power of the people, it's our power over ourselves. It's a virtue praised by all the ancient people who believe that self-control is very important. I, I wish I had that kind of self-control. Heck, I wish I had the self-control that I see every day in my dog, Sadie. Talk about self-control. I, of course, I had to teach her that self-control, didn't I? One of the things I did to teach her self-control, and I love to show this to the kids, you know, is, is uh, I put a piece of cheese in the middle of the floor. And, and, and you know, I, I, with her, I would, I would say, wait. I taught her the word, wait. And I put the piece of cheese in front of her and I'd, I'd wait a second and then I'd say, take it. And she'd take it. And then I'd fan it to 10 seconds and say, wait, 10 seconds, count off and then take it. And she'd jump on it. And there was a time when I got her to 60 seconds and there she would. I can right now, if I tell her to wait, I can I can wait, walk away, come back five minutes later and she will still sit there waiting for my command and i say take it and then she'll pounce on that cheese she's got far more self-control than i and that may be true of all of us there was a study done in the late 60s uh on um ongoing um our 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 difficulty in self-control our need for immediate gratification it was done at stanford i think in uh, over the period of 68 to 72 it was a longitudinal study that looked at children were four years old at that age, and then looked at them again 30 years later. Um, and, and so they had 653 children, and what they had was a giant marshmallow. Now, now my, my son Sadir just loves marshmallows, so I would love to do this on him. But they put this marshmallow on a plate, such as the, the same way I put a piece of cheese on a plate for Sadie, and talk about how delicious they, they you know, that marshmallow is. You know, that they would they would say, mm, this is the best marshmallow you've ever had. And then they would say to the child who's four years old, now you can eat this one marshmallow right now, but if you can wait for 15 minutes. I'll give you another one. So ring the bell if you need me, but otherwise I'll be back in 15 minutes. And they filmed the children to watch how these four-year-olds dealt with the temptation for instant gratification. And then they did the same test 30 years later on the same population. Uh, they also reevaluated them in high school. Now, some ate the marshmallow within 60 seconds. The average child ate the marshmallow within three minutes. But here's the interesting thing. 30% of those kids were able to wait for 15 minutes. They had very interesting strategies to help them not eat the marshmallows. You can see on the film, some struggle with it, but each of them came up with ways to delay their gratification. Now, here's the interesting thing. When they were in high school, those 30% scored 210 points more on the SAT than those who did not. They had lower body fat. They had better, they reported better relationships. They had overall a better perspective on life based on the measures of, uh, of the testing that they did. I'm not at all surprised because I know about my own love of jelly beans. My, my, uh, my kids certainly know about that. If I take a handful of jelly beans, no problem. I can handle just one if that's the only one that's near me. But if I take many jelly beans and eat them, wow, 
do I feel the cost of my lack of control? I can't stop eating them and I eat them, I eat them, I eat them and I eat them and I eat them. And then, and then, and then when I just, what I discover is this law of diminishing marginal returns that is true for all of our indulgences. It, over time, it makes me sick as I indulge myself, as I gratify these temptations. So some things just hurt us, but we are drawn like a moth towards those things, like a, like a moth to the flame towards those things. This is what Paul wrote about himself he, in Romans 7. He said, I do not do what I want, but I do evil. And that's what life looks for us, this inability for us to, to be patient, to wait uh, for the good that God has promised. Uh, it's our inability to control ourselves. And so self-control is, a, is an essential fruit. What's been most helpful to me is learning about strategies for dealing with my temptation. If you're thinking about the marshmallow, you're going to eat it. The ability to avoid thinking about it determines the ability to resist it. The ability to put that marshmallow out of your mind, that's the key. So I ask you today, are you staring at the things that tempt you towards the things that are unhealthy? If so, remove yourself from that situation. Remember whose you are. Recognize the consequences of your actions and how they affect all you love. Cultivate the fruit of self-control. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's our role, to be those branches that, that bear fruit. Life on the vine is the life to which we are called. And the single most important thing, Jesus says, is being a part of the community, being connected to the vine, being a part of the community who embodies the vine in our time. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide, abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit. To bear much fruit we have to abide in the Messiah, the Lord, Jesus, the one we call the Christ. Hang out with the one who wants to hang out with us, as we talked about Christmas Eve. And we need to be transformed by him through our relationship with him. Um, that A relationship that is always leading to the good that God desires for us and for the world. And how do we abide in the vine? Well, we stay in the soil, I think. I think the single most important thing I have learned is that uh, to have any of these fruits, to be a part of the vine, to stay connected in the vine, we need to live within a community uh, whose generative value is forgiveness. And that's what Paul says in our, in our epistle to, Col to the Colossians today. You know, verse 313, forgive others as I forgive you. That's how we abide in the vine. That's how we live in that soil, that humus that generates our humanity by accepting the truth that we ourselves have been forgiven, that we ourselves have been accepted in spite of our unacceptability, and that we are called to do the same, to accept others for the, in the same way, to accept others in spite of their unacceptability and to create for them a space 
of safety, a space of sanctuary where here in the soil, they too can produce these fruits. Abide in me as I abide in you. Forgive others as I forgive you. That's the gospel that we are to practice, especially in these 12 days of Christmas tide. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.